So we're going to look at Philippians 4. We're getting to the last chapter of our study of this little book of Paul, Philippians. So if you'll find your way to chapter 4. Paul started this church in Philippi, which is in northern Greece called Macedonia. And now he's writing back to them sometime later as the founding pastor, the spiritual father, with a heart for these people. And what he's told us in Philippians tells us this was a really good church. Uh, it's composed of saints, which in the Bible, a saint is a sinner who's saved by faith in Christ. A saint is not a miracle-working, super-duper Christian who's way above all of us ordinary Christians. No, in the Bible, the saint is just the word used of someone who's saved by faith in Christ, and God now lives in their life. They were saints. Not only that, but Paul said, the Spirit of God is working sanctification in your hearts. God is working to make you more holy as a people. Not only that, they were a joyful group, a very happy bunch of believers. They were a generous group. They would send support to Paul in his travels, wherever he was taking the gospel. They were supporting him. Paul commended them to be as a gospel church. He said, you are partners with me in the gospel. They had a partnership in gospel outreach and ministry for Jesus they were a church that we would all probably feel very comfortable attending. But they weren't a perfect church. They weren't like us. They weren't perfect. They had a problem. So when we're going to read these opening verses of the last chapter, the apostle is going to address a problem which might seem kind of small to us. Now, what's the big deal? Why take time about this little issue, Paul? Because it has the potential to cause great harm and to, to hinder the church's gospel outreach. So if you'll follow along, I think Mark will have on the screen Philippians chapter 4. I'll begin reading at verse 1 if you follow in your copy of God's Word. Therefore, and this is on the, on the heels of the, the end of chapter 3, the glorious doctrine of the glorious resurrection of Jesus, which guarantees the resurrection of all believers into glory one day. Therefore, because of that, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say, rejoice. There's a game show on TV. I think it might still be around. I haven't seen it in years. It's called Family Feud. Remember that? Richard Dawkins was the old host. I watched it back many years ago, and I think things have changed. I haven't watched it, but, but the basic concept was it was competition between two families. They were feuding in a competitive way over answering certain survey questions. And it was fun, and it was entertaining to watch 
two families feud. It's not quite so entertaining when the feud is in one family, right? And perhaps we've all seen families that aren't getting along and there's been estrangement and alienation. Some of us have personal experience with family feuds. Not a good thing. God's church is a family. And sad to say, through the years, churches, even good gospel churches, have been known to have conflict, right? There might be debates on what color carpeting we're going to have. There might be heated discussions and committee meetings and church business meetings. Whose motion gets voted on? Whose idea gets accepted? Who gets the committee chairmanship? Someone sat in my usual church seat. This is scandalous. Or someone parked in my parking spot. Don't they know that's where I parked for how many years? Who's going to sing the solo in this year's Christmas program? Oh, that could cause some tension, competition, conflict. It could be a perceived slight, personality clashes. For different reasons, church families sometimes have their own feuds which has caused one poet to write, to live above with saints I love, oh, that will be glory. To live below with the Christians I know, that's another story. <laughs> right? We envision the perfect fellowship of heaven with billions of redeemed saints. But now that some of them saints are here right next to us and we see each other's flaws and our differences of opinions, eh, it doesn't always tend to, to lead towards family harmony, sad to say. So the reality is that churches are made up of flawed people. We're still sinners, saved by grace. There will be times where we don't see eye to eye. There will be times of potential interpersonal conflict. We're going to look at Euodia and Syntyche. A case that Paul was addressing. How would you like your name in the Bible when it's referred to you're being called out for a family feud? Oh, boy, they'll have to live that one down through all eternity when we meet them in heaven. You Euodia, oh, I read about you in the Bible. If my name's going to be in the Bible, I'd like it to be for a little higher compliment than this. But with their example, let's look and apply this passage to ourselves, friends. How would we, how should we deal with any interpersonal problems that may and someday will arise among our sweet fellowship? Well, let's just go right through this passage. Paul will give us some wonderful, helpful points. Starting with number one, right in verse one, realize you are part of Jesus' loving family. Look at the love and the terms of affection in verse one. Paul says, therefore, my brothers, which includes sisters as well. He's used this throughout the epistle, the family term for brothers and sisters believing in the same Jesus Christ. We're family, <clears throat> brothers, whom I love and long for. I love you so much that there's this, this compelling attraction. I, I love to be with God's people, don't you? I want to be there when the assembly meets. I, I don't want to miss because that's my family. It's family reunion. I, 
I long to be with you, and when I can't be there, it kills me. I'm missing something in my life. So I'm trying to get back to you. I love you. I long for you. My joy and crown. His pride and joy was, were, were not the accomplishments of his life, not his financial status, not his educational degrees. His pride and joy, his joy and crown, with the people that God used him to touch with the gospel. And the same for us folks. The only thing we take to heaven with us, nothing material or physical, the only thing we take with us into eternity are the people that we have touched for Christ. Family, friends, the ones we brought to Jesus, the ones we discipled, they will be our joy before the throne of God. They will be our crowning reward in eternity when Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant, he's not going to tell me that because I built a big, beautiful cathedral for him. Not because I raised millions of dollars or I did something spectacular in personal achievement. It's going to be because of the souls, the saints that are in heaven because God used my life. A loving family. And Paul now will lay that as the foundation before he addresses the feuding ladies. Here's a principle for all of us. Before correction should come love and affirmation. Before you're going to address somebody on a tough topic, you're going to have to have that difficult conversation. Correction, confrontation, maybe even rebuke of a sin. Before that, it is wise as a parent, as a spouse, as a pastor, as a friend, to let that person know, as Paul does, hey, folks, what I'm going to say to you comes from my heart. I just love you to pieces. And what I'm going to say is because I love you. So I might have to warn you. I might have to correct you. I might have to talk about something that's going to be difficult. But it's not because I'm judging you or I'm mean towards you. I love you. So because I love you in the family of God, I'm going to talk to you, Odia and Sintiki, about a little issue that I don't want to become a big issue. Principle number one, we're part of the loving family. So let's accept and, and deal with the reality that sometimes we have to take care of those issues that are sticky. Number two, remember who you are in Jesus. Now I say that because verse 1 ends very similar to verse 2. Verse 1 ends, stand firm thus in the Lord. Verse 2 ends, agree in the Lord. In the Lord is not just a little cliche. From the beginning of the epistle, Paul has addressed these believers as those who are in Christ. And when you read Paul's epistles in the New Testament, this is his number one title for believers. More than anything else, he calls them redeemed. That's true. He calls them brethren. We've seen that. But more than anything else, he says, Christian, once you are saved by Jesus Christ, you are in Christ. This is the doctrine that we call spiritual baptism, spiritual union with Christ. The Spirit of God, the moment I believe in Jesus, places me into Christ, and I'm one with Jesus. I'm in Him. He's in me. There's a union with Christ. And if I'm united to Christ by faith, 
and you choose by faith to have Jesus as your Savior, you're united to Jesus by faith, then guess what? You're united to him. I'm united to him. We're united to each other. We are in Christ and members together in the same body. The world has a saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? If you don't like somebody who's against me, then we can be friends, even if I don't know you or care for you. But if you're the enemy of my enemy, we'll be friends. Well, that's not a real good Christian ethic. Let's turn it around for believers. The friend of my friend is my friend. If you're friends with my best friend, and his name is Jesus, if you're on friendship terms with Jesus, then you're okay with me. Anybody who's good with Jesus is good with me. And not just a friend level, but a brother level. If you're a brother or sister in Christ, we're family. How can I get mad at somebody who's in Christ? How dare I pick an argument or fuss with somebody who Jesus loves and accepts as his own? We better be very careful how we treat and handle one another. We're handling the body of Christ. And he's very protective and loving of his body, isn't he? It was Saul of Tarsus before he was converted to Paul. When Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, Jesus asked Paul, who remember what he was doing on that road? He was going to Damascus to imprison, beat, and persecute a group of Christians that he heard were up there. Because he thought Christians are a cult, they are against us Jews, and we're getting rid of them. That was his life pattern, his ministry. He's on the way to Damascus. Jesus stops him and says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And Jesus was gone. Jesus was in heaven at that point. So Paul was not persecuting Jesus literally, physically, bodily. But Paul was doing that to the body of Christ. And Jesus said, if you do that to my body, you're doing it to me. So God forbid that I were ever hurt, harm, insult, feud with the body of Christ. It would not make my Jesus very happy. Principle number three. Let's look at verse three. And now Paul calls in somebody else. He says, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Help them get along, help them resolve their issue, help them make peace, help them to get right with each other, help them to reconcile. They, they need somebody to help them. And friends, isn't it the reality, we should know this from our own experience, God uses his people to help his people. He uses us in one another ministry. We don't have to go searching and finding and Googling for some expert out in the world to help us resolve any issues that may arise in our relationship. We've got the wonderful family and body of Christ to provide wise, loving, helpful counsel that can bring peace where there isn't. What's interesting is true companion, he's unnamed. We don't know. Who, who's he referring to? Um, the church obviously would know who Paul was referencing. It's also a possibility, and maybe your Bible translation has on the side note or a footnote, 
The word companion can also be a proper name. If I'm pronouncing it right, Sisgis. Sisgis, which is the word for companion, can also be used as the name of a person. It's very similar to if you go back to verse 1, when he says, my joy and crown. The word crown in the Greek is Stephanos or Stephen. So if you call somebody Stephen, you could also be referring to them as a crown. It means it can be an object or a name. So maybe he's talking to a man named Siscus in the church, or maybe he's using a term as a companion and they would know who that is. Whoever it is, it's just pointing out the fact that Paul says, we need a third party to step in and help Euodia and Syntyche come to agreement in the Lord. And this is fulfilling one of the Beatitudes of Jesus. I'll start it, see if you can finish it. Blessed are the peacemakers, for, remember the rest of it? They shall be called sons of God or children of God. You are showing you are one of God's offspring if you are involved in making peace among God's people. It's a blessing to do. It's a great joy to see other people who have been having problems. There's tension in the friendship. There's just something going on. And you can be the person God uses to help figure things out. I think it's true. We're either, when there's issues like this, we're either a part of the solution or we're a part of the problem. Let's be the solution part, right? Let's be the peacemaker, not the peacebreaker. The peacemaker and have the blessing of the Lord. So would you be willing and available if you're the one who sees something going on or hears something, you'd be the one with courage and compassion to say, I love these brothers or sisters. I want to see if God could use me to help them see eye to eye and whatever is their disagreement. You say, oh, but pastor, I don't know what to do. I wouldn't know what to say, how to, how to approach that. that. Isn't that just for pastors? Well, pastors are shepherds and available, but it might not be a pastor who's the one who sees that or available or has the best uh, connection or credibility for that indiv individual in need. It could be you, the non-pastor. Well, let me give you six real quick steps. These are from the scripture on how to prevent conflict or if you see it, how to resolve it in a biblical way. Number one, the Bible says always go talk to somebody. Talk privately. Don't address them in front of the whole church. Don't uh, correct your child in front of their peers and everybody else. Don't question your spouse when there's others around. It, the, that can be humiliating and defeat the purpose. But Jesus said, go to your brother one-on-one -on -one and talk it out. Number two, not just talk, but listen. Ask questions. And I think this step, if applied, would resolve the majority of our issues. It would clear up misunderstandings. But we get the facts that we didn't have. Oh, that's not what I heard. But now that I, you, okay, I get it. I'm sorry. I jumped to the wrong conclusion. We're okay. If we just go talk, ask questions, and listen, and learn. But there might be uh, an issue that really needs to be confronted biblically. And when we do that, the Bible says, speak the truth 
and love. Got to have both. I want to address, if, if, if there's a sin problem that needs to be corrected, I want to use scripture in a loving way. It's not just my opinion that I'm blasting you with. But here's what God's word says, brother, sister. And let's just consider what, what we should be doing in the light of that. How, how should this impact the way things are going here? Number four, if it's on me, then I should be humble enough to admit my wrong and ask forgiveness. It, it, it's going back to chapter two, be humble like Jesus, and that will produce unity. And humility in me means sometimes I'll own up. It was my fault. I'm sorry I said that. Or I was wrong the way I treated you. Or now that you uh, asked me or now that you confronted me, the Spirit of God helped me to see. Yeah, I was too blind to see, too pride to admit it, but I was wrong. Please forgive me. And we've got plenty of grace in the family of God, and we can keep forgiving. Seventy times, seven times, Jesus said. We'll keep forgiving even if, we, if, if we're blowing it regularly. If we need forgiveness, we ask. And it's available in the body of Christ. We forgive, we restore fellowship, get back to what it was before the issue, the problem. And if needed, if two people are trying to work it out and we're just not getting anywhere, there's no progress in our conflict, well then the peacemaker, the third party, find somebody in the body of Christ that you both know and trust, respect, somebody who's wise and mature and can come in as a third neutral party and say, look, Let's, let's resolve this. Uh, let's just not figure out who's right or who's wrong. There's probably enough wrong to go around both sides, but let's just get it right so we're honoring the Lord in our friendship and our relationship in the family of God. Principle number four, back to Philippians 4, verse 3. Live on mission for Jesus. This is vital to preventing conflict and then resolving it when it may show up. Paul says, ladies... Euodia, Satiki, remember what you've done, and companion, remind these ladies who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. And, and they're my fellow workers. These ladies and others with Paul were partners in taking the gospel on mission to seeing people saved. That church grew, and, and from the very beginning, people were getting saved in prison, down by the riverbank. A demon-possessed girl was liberated by Christ when she came to know Jesus. And it was a, a gospel church. And as long as they were focused on the gospel, there was no room for selfish disunity. But when there's selfish disunity, gospel unity gets pushed aside and affects gospel ministry. And church, we need to remind ourselves, especially coming up to our big day Saturday at the beach, the devil, our enemy's desire, is to distract our church from its gospel mission by bringing up all sorts of things and getting us busy and, and, and occupied with other things, lesser things. He doesn't want us to get out with the gospel. Our enemy wants to disrupt our wonderful unity at Living Hope Church, that gospel unity, so that the gospel won't go forward. And more people, he doesn't want more people saved. And at the end of verse 3, names added to the book of life. That's God's record book of who is saved. He wants more names in the registry of, of 
God's family. The devil says no. And I will upset the church family in order to keep them from doing the work that God's called them to do. But we won't let that happen, will we? Let's be partners together this Saturday on the beach and, and any opportunity at all the times we have. Let's be partners in seeing people come to Christ and added to the book of life and part of the body of Christ. Winning an argument, if that's ever going on in a church, winning the argument is not the goal. Winning souls to Jesus is our objective. All right, real quick. I think I'm running out of time. So I'll get you real quick to verse 4. A song, a, a verse we know well. We sing a little song, a chorus with the kids. We want to find our joy in Jesus. So Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Paul says, come on, ladies. Come on, church. Where is our joy? It's only in Jesus. What is it that you're arguing over? What is it you want so badly that you're arguing, you're feuding, you've maybe spoken some angry words, uh, you're sitting on opposite sides of the church so you don't have to be with that person that you're not liking? What is it that you want? You really think that's going to satisfy you, give you more joy than Jesus? No way. There's nothing that is fulfilling as being right with Jesus. The joy that Jesus gives transcends anything on our agenda that we're trying to get accomplished in our, our little world. Could you imagine with me on a hot summer day, along the sidewalk, two little kids playing in a little mud puddle there, and they're fussing at each other. Is my mud, mud, my mud pie is better than your mud pie. No, it isn't. Mine's better. No, right? My mom says my mud pie is better. My mom says my, and, and they're arguing about their mud pies when going right by them, slowly with the musical song, is the ice cream truck. That colorful truck with a musical ditty and all the treasures inside, push-ups, popsicles, dreamsicles, fudgesicles, and they could care less. There goes their treat going right by, because they're all fussing about mud pies. And I wonder if that's how Jesus looks down in the Church of Jesus Christ, when Euodian, Sintiki, and others are, are debating and arguing over silly little things like mud pies and missing the big joy and treasure, the treat of Jesus, blessing, full blessing in heart, knowing Jesus, obeying Jesus, loving Jesus, pleasing Him. That brings greater joy than anything we could ever, ever get caught up in in debates and arguments. Find our joy in Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord. And don't you know that Lord we're rejoicing in, the end of verse 5, is coming back. So be ready. Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. I don't think he's meaning there the Lord is right there with you. We know that's true. The Lord is with us wherever we go. So the Lord is there listening to our, our words, seeing our our anger towards each other, or our disagreeableness. The Lord definitely knows that he's present. But the Lord is at hand is a reference to the coming, the return of the Lord. It's imminent. It could be today. 
Paul is reminding them and reminding us, us that if Jesus could come back at any any day, and it could be today, it could very well be today, would we really want him to come and find us upset, feuding in the family, out of sorts with someone, over some lesser thing, like a mud pie on the scale of things? Is that how we would want the Lord to return into our life? I think not. So, living in the light of Jesus, any moment return requires that that at, at this moment, right now, we settle all issues. At this moment, right now, we make things right where it's not right. Right now, we get right with the Lord, with one another. And of course, that means 100% right now, if you are not 100% sure that you're one of Jesus' children. Don't wait till tomorrow. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to come to Christ with an open heart. Say, Lord, my heart is sinful. I need a Savior to cleanse me, change my heart, give me eternal life that I might be your child forever. Today, right now, is the best time to turn to Jesus, trusting Him. Let's pray. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed.